Good afternoon and welcome to the eighth episode of Talking with Frankie. Today we have in studio Father Michael Rogers, a Jesuit from the U.S. Northeast province. Father Mike and I will talk about Marian devotions in the Catholic Church. Father Mike is a PhD student at Rochester College, Toronto. Father Mike Rogers, welcome to Southern Night and to the show Talking with Frankie. How are you doing today? Well, thanks, Frankie. I'm doing well. It's great to be here. Yeah, so welcome. Uh, you are doing your PhD on Marian devotion. Can you talk about your discoveries in this field? So uh, I'm actually doing it on popular devotion in general, so not just Marian devotions, but okay. Marian devotions, things like the Santo Nino of Cebu in, in the Philippines, um, and a billion other things, the Camino de Santiago, all those things. But Marian devotions are a particular and an important kind of devotion in the Catholic Church. Okay, why? Um, well, the first reason why they're a particular and kind of important devotion in the Church is because Mary, as the Second Vatican Council tells us, Lumen Gentium, stands as a model of the church for right, us. Right, right. So in some ways, it's it's a reminder of who we actually are at our core as church. Okay. Um, Mary is, is is the mother of Jesus, but she's, she's the queen of heaven. Um, and, and we talk about her in ways that, that help us to understand who and how we're supposed to be on earth as well. Um, Marian devotions are also really important because Mary is an eschatological symbol by which we mean Mary represents who and how we hope will be because of the assumption. So that's actually what lets her have all these Marian apparitions and things like that as well. And what are the biblical foundation of Marian devotions? Well, the the obvious biblical foundation is what the angel Gabriel says to her. You know, so Every year we celebrate on March 25th. It's coming up in a couple of weeks, the Feast of the Annunciation. Right. Um, and the angel Gabriel says to her in the Gospel of Luke, Hail, favored one. Right? That's, that's the first Marian devotion. It comes from the angels themselves. Um, and it, it comes from this idea that, you know, that Mary is somebody who, again, from the Gospel of Luke, uh, highly favored or full of grace, is somebody who really represents uh, what God hopes for all of us. Right. Um, so that's the source of it. Um, and most of the best stuff we have for Mary, uh, scripturally, comes from the Gospel of Luke. Um, there's also this fascinating book uh, from the fathers uh-huh. called the Proto-Gospel of James, which is fun to read. It's not. We don't think it's revealed truth. We think it's just sort of something that came out of the early tradition of the, of the church. Um, but that tells us a lot about, gives us ideas about what Mary's early life was like. So um, a lot of things that we think about, sort of the, the birthday of Mary, which we celebrate on September 8th, for example, uh, those all come from from that that book. So. There's early, early, early documentation of, of Marian devotion. So it, there are a lot of things we can find in the Bible about uh, why the church uh, consider Mary like as the mother of God. And then so it's a lot of biblical foundation in that aspect. Well, and the important thing to, to realize, too, you're absolutely right. And the important thing to realize, too, is that when we talk about Marian devotion, yeah. we're, we're not simply talking about devotion to a person. We're talking about devotion also to the idea of who Christ is, Right. Right. Every time the church says something about Mary, especially from the early church, when they say Mary is the mother of God, well, we know historically Mary is the mother of Jesus. So saying Mary is the mother of God is saying Jesus is God, right? Right, yeah. So it's not just about who Mary is. It's also a lot about who we say Jesus is. Right. Um, and that's really important, too. Yeah, that's very important. And you mentioned, like, Marian apparition. So what is a Marian apparition? How can we explain that to our Christian Catholic. Sure. So it, it's funny because from very early on in the Catholic Church, we have this tradition of, of believe it or not, believing in ghosts. 
St. Gregory the Great, believe, Pope Gregory the Great, clearly believed in ghosts, right? He said, I've seen ghosts. They, they're souls who are in purgatory. So we have that. Right. But apparitions, Mary's not a ghost. She's not appearing as a ghost. What makes Mary an apparition particular uh, and important is that Mary has already been assumed body and soul into heaven. And so that means that when Mary appears, it's really herself. You know, it's really the, the totality of who she is coming to us. Um, and usually it's to do, to do two things. Um, one, it's to communicate a message of God's love. Um, and that sometimes comes as a message of penance, as it did, for example, at Lourdes, um, as it has at Medjugorje. Um, it often also comes as a message of uh, the need for unity and building community. And it's funny because every time there is a Marian apparition, or even a lot of Marian devotions that don't that aren't really about apparitions, um, you you see Mary asking for a church to be built. Is there an exact number of apparitions? Uh, there is no exact number of apparitions, and the reason why is because the church doesn't actually give say this is a valid apparition. Okay, um, what the church says uh, in most cases is that they give it a nihil obstat. They say, and it's Pope Benedict the Fourteenth. Here's me being a gigantic nerd on these things. But Benedict XIV gave permission to the local bishops to decide whether or not something was actually happening in their diocese. Now, in certain cases, the, the Vatican has had to step in uh, when things have, have been contentious. But um, generally, the local bishop says, look, everything is going on in this place. Nothing here seems to obstruct the faithful from believing it if they want to. So what that means is, for example, if you read the message of Fatima and you are into it, it helps you grow in, in faith. It helps you grow in love. It helps you grow in devotion to our Lord. That's wonderful. That That's absolutely a, an amazing thing. Go for it. Yeah. But if you read it and you say, you know, this just doesn't match how and who I think God is, okay, that's fine. You don't you don't need to believe this. Nihil upset means you can. Um, what then happens is not that the church necessarily approves it, but what happens is it's fascinating. They just add, they'll add the feast day to the universal calendar. Right. Okay. So, here in Canada, even on February, celebrate the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes because it's been added to the universal calendar. Um, what that means is that the entire church is free to celebrate this now. It's not just something for a local community; it's for the entire Catholic Church to celebrate. Um, and that's happened with Fatima, of course. It's happened December twelfth, Our Lady of Guadalupe. So that's sort of how the church sort of gives full approval to it. So the big ones sort of all have that, but there are little smaller ones around that the church has said. You know, if you want to believe this, uh, you can. There's nothing that nothing that obstructs you. There's a Marian apparition that happened in Wisconsin in the United States. Yeah. Um, you know, but they are not like big feast has not Guadalupe or other Marian feasts we have in the church. They are small devotion, but they still they just still accept them as a as apparition, right? Exactly. Exactly. So it's not. It, Again, it's it's not saying the church isn't necessarily judging whether or not the apparitions happened. What it's saying is, if you want to believe this, there's nothing in what this visionary is saying Mary said that goes against our Catholic faith. Okay. Um, and so, if this helps you grow in the faith, that's great. And if it doesn't, it, it's okay. You don't you don't have to believe this either. Um, so, I, I volunteer uh, myself every summer at Lourdes in France, uh, and I'll often work in the baths, helping people in and out or or pulling people out of wheelchairs. So it's a priest. It's the one week a year. I actually take off the collar and just sort of do humble service. Um, although when I have to work in the grotto telling people to be quiet, I put the collar back on because it <laughs> quiets them down a little more quickly than if I'm not wearing okay. it. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, 
But it, the thing that's fascinating is you go there, and a lot of people there, there's sort of a joking rivalry between people at Lords, and they kind of say, oh, well, you know, those Fatima people. And okay. I know some Fatima people who will say, oh, those Lords people, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's the same Mary wearing different clothes people. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. that's what it comes down to in the end. But I, I think it's fascinating because the things we've talked about already, you know, with Guadalupe and Lords and Fatima, um, and we're talking about the same Mary wearing or wearing different clothes. My family has a great, being Southern Italian, has a great devotion to Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Um, so, you know, Mary wears blue in Mexico. She wears brown in the south of Italy. She wears white in, in Portugal and in France. Um, but it's the same mother of God. And, and, and in the end, she's pointing us back to her son. That's the most important part of it. Exactly. Father Michael Jones, how does our veneration of Mary relate to our worship to God? So there's a couple of things to remember here. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about the veneration of saints or the mother of God. Unfortunately, a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters uh, are, who are wonderful people misunderstand what we do as Catholics sometimes, right? Yeah. They think we worship Mary or we worship the saints, and we don't. Um, the first thing to remember is what St. Basil the Great says in On the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, Christ becomes the visible image of, of the Father. Um, and because he becomes the image, and this is back during a time when people were assaulting the use of icons in churches. He says, because he becomes the image, we can make images of, of, of Christ. It's not a violation of the first commandment, right? We're not making idols. Um, St. John of Damascus takes it one step further. Um, when St. John Damascus is an interesting character, he uh, was himself uh, an Eastern Christian. Um, he was the prime minister to a sultan. Um, and it was at a time when the emperor of Constantinople uh, was himself opposed to the use of icons. He was an iconoclast. He would he would tear down images from church and break, break them. So John runs off and is living in this Muslim court, and he writes back, and he says, look, the images of saints, when we venerate them, what we're, not, we're, we're venerating them as an altar Christus, right? This is somebody who shows us who Christ is. So what we're venerating, what we're, we're respecting when we venerate, we don't worship, we venerate, we're respecting the image of Christ that's present in this person and it's present in each of us. Yeah. Um, so that's a really important, important distinction. So for the mother of God, we're venerating an image of somebody who is full of grace. Right. We're venerating an image. Uh, uh, we're respecting somebody who, who shows us the way to her son, always points the way to her son. Um, you know, she's the one who in the gospel of John at the wedding at Cana says, do whatever he tells you. Right. So Mary is always bringing us back to her son. And that's what's most important. Yeah. And Father Mike, uh, for the church, Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. What does that mean? Well, so, I mean, we know what the Ark of the Covenant is, right? The Ark of yeah. the Covenant is, is the box that the, uh, that the people of Israel carried the law around in after they received it at Mount Sinai. Um, so Mary is that new symbol of the law, right? She's, she's the new bearer of the law. Um, Jesus is the law, the law of God's love for each and every one of us. So Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. It's literally the one who for nine months bears Jesus in her body and carries him. Right. But the other thing, even beyond that moment when she's, when she's actually physically bearing Christ, she bears that message to the rest of the world. You know, there's, there's a great tradition in the early church that Mary was really somebody that the apostles returned to and, and talked to and, and took care of uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven, um, that she was really a figure and a cornerstone of the early church. Um, and, and so in some ways, she continues to bear that law to them. Right. 
And we talk about Mary as the new Eve or and the first witness of the resurrection. Can you explain that? <laughs> sure. You know, the first witness of the resurrection is a wonderful is a wonderful um, pious devotion that we don't have in Scripture, right? Okay. So in Scripture, we don't see Jesus going to Mary first. But we're both Jesuits, and and, and St. Ignatius of Loyola in the spiritual exercises is adapting something he's heard from the Golden Legend and other places right. that Jesus, being a good son, would want to console his mother first. So he rises from the dead, and the first thing he does, like a good son, is go see his mom, Right. It it fits with what we know of the of the Old Testament commandment: honor your mother and father. Right, like right. the first person Jesus goes to is, is his mother, and it's interesting because um, even in a lot of popular devotion in Spain, where they have these stations of the cross that get carted around the streets during Holy Week, there's a there's a great uh, in Seville. There's one where there's actually Jesus risen from the dead on Easter Sunday morning, running to his mother first. Right. And I love that. I love that image. Um, you know, Mary is the new Eve. Um, in, in a lot of ways, what we talk about with Mary as the new Eve uh, relates back to who Jesus is as the new Adam. Um, there's a great pious tradition in Israel. Um, if you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you go to Golgotha and you climb up to Golgotha to Calvary, and you can you can touch the stone that the cross was put into, and um, it's really a profound place to pray. Okay. But underneath that is a place called the Tomb of Adam, oh, because yeah. the the legend was that where Jesus was crucified was on top of the Tomb of Adam. Um, okay. And so you go down underneath, and the idea that, that Jesus' blood seeps down through the ground into and reaches reaches the the the, the remains of, of Adam. Um, this juxtaposition of of Jesus, who's sort of the redeemed human nature, right? Jesus is is every, Jesus because of what he does, and and the salvation he works for us redeems our human nature. And so what God intended for us in when we were before we sinned in the garden, right? right? Before this moment of original sin, Jesus brings to completion for us. Um, so Mary, of course, if, if, if Jesus is the new Adam, then Mary is this figure of the redeemed of the redeemed church too, right? So she's the new Eve. So the church is the new Eve too, or at least it's supposed to be. Um, we're not perfect. We're always in need of, of we're always in need of, of, of being reformed and, and growing and getting forgiveness from God, but we keep moving forward in that way too. So that's really important. Right. So thank you. Why is Marian devotion so significant in Latin America, Father Michael? So I, I think there's two things. I think when you look at um, when you look at the place that Christianity takes root in Latin America, um, it's taking root in, in a lot of uh, cosmologies, a lot of uh, ways of thinking about the Earth that have sort of feminine images already built into them. Okay. Um, so we 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 from the West would come from. Uh, a cosmology that's built from Plato and Aristotle and actually kind of emerges out of the stuff of Greek and Roman myth and legend. We built a con- complex in, in metaphysics, which we then took Christianity, which was actually a Near Eastern religion, and it gets to Rome and it gets to Greece and people like Paul, the wisdom is that they can combine those things and the fathers do it even better. I mean, Paul kind of gives us a, gives us, here's Jesus Christ and then the fathers of the church, the bishops who are well-educated men, most of them, uh, are able to build this cos- this cosmology, this this view of how the world works, and they're able to take Christianity and say, "Look, these things go together." Right. Right. Justin Martyr says that that the wisdom is our, that that in some ways the wisdom of the church is already here in what we're doing in Roman understandings of the world and the way things work. When you look at Latin America, uh, when missionaries arrive, Franciscans, Jesuits, uh, Dominicans, primarily, and some Augustinians too. Um, 
what they find there is that people are already open to transcendence. People already have ways of thinking about who God is. Um, but a part of that, and particularly in places like Mexico or, or Latin America, is a, sense, a strong sense of God as mother. So they bring these images uh, with them often enough. Um, and in the Dominican Republic, for example, we have Alta Gracia. Alta Gracia. In Haiti, we have a perpetual secours. Right. So, and those are two very different things, too, because Alta Gracia is an image that it's an European image that, that's brought over. Okay. Um, and sort of the miracle of it, it's really funny. It's brought over because a little girl asks her father, who's a traitor, who was a, who was a traitor in goods, right? Okay. Not a traitor from his country, but a traitor in goods. Um, she asks him for an image of Mary. She has this idea of what this image should look like. He goes out and finds it. They put it in their house, and every night the image seems to disappear into an orange grove. Um, and that's actually why oranges are always put out with Our Lady of Alta Gracia, oh, yeah. according to the legend. So what's actually happening is Mary saying, I want to be here, build a church for me here. Oh, okay. It sort of fits with that space. So that's where they build. That's where they end up building the church. Um, Perpetual Help is, a, is another great example. Perpetual Help is actually an icon from Crete that ends up in Rome. It's uh, in Rome. It's on the uh, Esquiline Hill near St. Mary Major. There's a small church. The original is there. Yeah. Um, the image is beautiful because it's actually Mary comforting Jesus after he's had a bad dream about his crucifixion. So he's a child. Um, and he's had a bad dream in which he's dreamed about his crucifixion. And it's literally in the two, you can, that's why you see the two angels with the implements of the crucifixion on either side. I can tell you in Haiti, perpetual help is, is very important for oh, us. Sure. Well, it was brought over by the Redemptorists probably um, yeah. because the Redemptorists used it as a way, in a very classical missionary kind of way. They used perpetual help, the image, but also the novena that went with it to teach catechism. The Redemptors bring it to Haiti. They did this in the Philippines as well in 1910. Okay. Um, and they use the novena to Our Lady of Perpetual Help as a way of not just teaching about Mary uh, or, or Jesus, but as a way of teaching about the Catholic faith. Right. And so every day of that novena has a different value or a different thing that the priests can preach on to instruct the people of God. Um, so it's a great missionary image for that reason. But in many ways, it's because the people of Latin America and the Caribbean already had this idea of, of, of the divine present in their culture before Christianity got there that really emphasized the motherly aspect of God. And it's, of course, Mary is not God. We know that. Um, but it was easy for them to understand Mary in that way, I think, because of how sort of their way of looking at the world was, was different, even from a European way of looking at the world. Right. Yeah. Father Michael, can you speak a little bit about the role of Mary in the accompaniment of some Catholic Mexican migrants on their difficult journey to the American-Mexican border? Is a very is a good reality. This is a controversial one. Um, okay. So, according to some ethnographer, ethnographers uh, in places like Los Angeles and Texas, they've spoken to document to largely undocumented immigrants who are crossing the border between the U.S. and Mexico, um, and they've said um, that. As they were crossing the border, they, they either saw Our Lady of Guadalupe yes. in the desert, um, and that in some cases they even felt like Our Lady of Guadalupe was helping them get through the desert, sort of past immigration and customs, right. which is why it gets controversial, because a lot of people will say, well, she wouldn't do that. You think it's just an act of faith? I, so let me, let me put it this way. I'm not. It's above my pay grade to judge whether or not she's appearing, right? Okay. As we said before... That's actually the, 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 the competency of a local bishop or wherever they say she's appearing. Right. right? So right. I'm not going to say she's appearing or not appearing. But people are saying they're having a sense of Mary's presence with them, of, of Our Lady's presence with them as, as they cross the border. 
Um, you know, the the message of Our Lady of Guadalupe to Juan Diego was, uh, am I not here who am your mother? Am I, are you not in my shelter and protection, right? So, of course, the people who are, who are fleeing for their lives across very rough terrain, who already have a devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe, uh, would have a strong sense that, that the Mother of God is there with them, watching them. And the other thing about Our Lady of Guadalupe that we need to remember is Our Lady of Guadalupe, as she appears to Juan Diego, is pregnant. So it's not just that Our Lady is with them. It's that, it's that the, infant Christ, the unborn Christ is with them. Um, so especially for so many families who come over with small children, the idea that the unborn Christ is with them, um, especially as they're taking care and protecting their children, just as they have a mother who's there with her child in a very real and palpable way, uh, you can understand how they would say they feel the presence of Mary with them. But yes, there is this controversial claim that's made by some yeah. that they are seeing Mary in the desert along the U.S. southwest border. It's above my pay grade to judge it. Um, I, I tweeted it one day. Yeah. That having in the midst of my research, I had found this. Uh, I caught a lot of guff, a lot of grief for that from people who weren't enthused by the idea. Okay. Um, but it's an interesting and fascinating thought that Mary could be with us in that way. Father Michael just as a Jesuit, what is the role of Mary in Ignatian spirituality? <laughs> so Mary is, is so incredibly central in, in, in Jesuit spirituality. And it's funny because um, some of it is Ignat- who Ignatius himself was. Ignatius was a man of the Renaissance, but in many ways he was still kind of entranced by medieval ideas. And so for Ignatius... Um, the idea of courtly love, that there would be somebody that a knight would go out, a, a lady that a knight would serve without any any sense of physical attraction. Just, this is the great lady that I'll serve, right? A knight serves the queen of his kingdom. Um, uh, for Ignatius, Mary was that. that right. When Ignatius decides to stop going for the honors of the world, he lays down his sword at Montserrat in front of a statue of Our Lady. Um, when Ignatius makes his first vow of chast- chastity, he goes to a place called Aranza Zoo. Uh, and he, there's a statue there, a, a famous statue in the Basque country. Um, that's where he makes a vow of chastity before he even starts starts going on the rest of his life. Ignatius went to the shrine of Our Lady of Loreto, um, where it's said, uh, according to tradition, that the House of Mary uh, arrived during the Crusades. Um, uh, Ignatius, of course, uh, establishes the Mother Church of the Jesuits in, at the place where we have the icon of our of the Madonna della Strada, Our Lady of the Streets, um, Our Lady of the Way. Um, so for all of these, Ignatius himself has a very strong Marian devotion. In the context of our spirituality, in the exercises we're told to turn to Mary, particularly when we feel like it might be difficult to talk to God about something. You know, when you can't talk to the king, Ignatius basically says, go to the queen. Um, and that's really important because I think, I think sometimes anybody in this life can feel a distance from God something might have happened in your life where it's hard to understand or explain what's going on. Um, something might have happened where uh, you feel like you just can't talk to God. You, maybe you need to go to confession and you're just not in a space to talk to Jesus because you don't feel worthy or for whatever reason. Ignatius says, okay, if you're there, talk to Mary. Um, go to Mary first. And of course, for us as Jesuits, one of the biggest prayers of the spiritual exercises is the triple colloquy. Right. And Ignatius says, look, first go talk to Mary. You know, spend some time talking to Mary. And I think there's an idea that the tenderness and compassion of Mary in prayer, that Mary, uh, while she has this special place in salvation history, that Mary is one of us, uh, and she can understand what we're going through. Right. Um, 
kind of warm you up for the, con- the next conversations you have, which is, with, which is with Jesus, and then the third, which is with God the Father. That Mary is that place that can kind of warm our hearts, uh, can, can, can sort of uh, make hearts that might have been stone fleshy again, to borrow a line, a Lenten line from the prophet Amos, right? Right. That we need to kind of be warmed up a bit. And Mary can kind of get us to that place because she is a mother um, and she does love us. Yeah. And what role does Marian devotion play in your own spiritual life and prayer, Father Michael? <laughs> well, it's a huge part of my own spiritual life and prayer. I mean, I don't know if you've if, if you've seen it, Frankie, but since we live in the same community, right? Uh, in my room, I have this big wall, and it's all these Marian icons of different places from different places I've been to. <laughs> it's it's really incredible. And my my phone background is Our Lady of the Way, um, and it's actually really funny because sometimes I look at that phone background and it, it looks like she's smiling at me, and other times it's yeah. that motherly look that says, "What are you doing? Yeah. What are you up to right now?" Um, but for for me, praying the Rosary is an important part of every day for me. You know, waking up and praying the Rosary. Um, uh, that trip that I take to Lourdes each year with a group of young people to serve in in the baths of Lourdes uh, is a big part of, of my year. Um, uh, and I think in the end, the biggest part of it is that um, we... Well, so I, I grew up personally as a young person in the time of John Paul II, right? Totus to us, Maria. All, all, all to you. Um, and... and that model that St. John Paul II gave each of us, that Mary is someone we can always turn to, uh, has been a big part of how I've grown up in the faith. Um, so it's a part of how I was formed to be a Catholic. Right. It's a part of how I, it's a big part of how I pray. Um, and it's also a big part of how I live uh, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Um, so it's, it's sort of a big part of who I am, how I relate to God, and then how I relate to the rest of the world because of it. So Father Michael Rogers, any final thoughts? Just, I, I think the only final thought I'd have would be this, just that you know, for so many people, particularly people who feel uh, like maybe they've lost the way, maybe they feel distant from the church, um, particularly for Catholics who feel distant from the church, um, you know, something as simple as a Hail Mary is literally quoting scripture. It's affirming who God is. Um, and, you know, because we're saying she's the mother of God, it's asking for somebody who loves us to pray for us now and even in the most difficult moment of our life, which is to say when, when we die. Um, so if you can't pray, if you're finding it hard to make a grand prayer, that simple little prayer maybe once a day just to start up again um, and asking Mary to pray for you and bring you closer to her son again or closer to the church again uh, is a good way to get going. Okay. So thank you, Father Michael Rogers, for participating in Talking with Frankie. In the next episode, we'll talk about the Sacrament of Reconciliation with Father Diane Diaz. You can subscribe and to Talking with Frankie on Spotify, iTunes Music, SouthernLight.org, and our Facebook page, Talking with Frankie. Thank you all for listening. Many blessings. Bye-bye.